Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Blockchain. Uh, I'm filling in for Gregory this week, and we have two special guests. So I'm going to introduce them, and then I'll just kind of throw my name out there so you all know that I'm on here. But we have Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. And Kevin Owaki. Hello. Thanks for having me. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. Now, uh, I'm going to do just a real quick intro uh, on what I know about you guys. Of course, I've known Eric for a long time. Interestingly enough, I got my first podcast mic. It was actually donated to me by TechSmith, who makes uh, ScreenFlow. And they sent me a license for ScreenFlow as well. And the reason was, was that I was tweeting about a video that I made for Teach Me to Code, which is a series that Eric started a long, long time ago. I wound up uh, taking it over. Um, at one point, he handed it off to me. But yeah, you, you can blame the microphone-ness and some of the other stuff on Eric. And then, yeah, I wound up reaching out to Greg Pollock and he got me the rest of the way into podcasting. But yeah, a lot of history here with Eric and I. And then Kevin, you're the uh, founder uh, or one of the founders of Gitcoin. And uh, we, we've yep. talked once or twice in the past. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I missed a lot of stuff. Eric's working on CodeFund and Kevin's working on Gitcoin. What, what else do people need to know about you guys? Uh, I look like a chubby clone of you. <laughs> Chubby clone of who? You. Oh, okay. I'm also bald with a beard, but about 100 pounds more. <laughs> right. I'm a few hundred miles east of you guys over here in Colorado. So I have the Colorado beard and the long hair, as, <laughs> as they make you do when you come into the state. <clears throat> Is the Colorado beard an official cut? or? I think that, yeah, they make you get one before you get a driver's license. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and Birkenstocks. Money with yeah. one. Anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So yeah, so we're we're talking a little bit about uh, blockchain on the show and open source sustainability. That's kind of been the thing that tends to come up whenever I talk to Eric these days because he's uh, so deep in with CodeFund and CodeSponsor and all of the things that he, he's been working on there. And he's also a co-host on the Sustain Our Software or SOS podcast that we put together. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Gitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought I'd give you both a chance to just explain because I'm sure you explain it better and faster than I do. Um, what you're working on over there as far as open source sustainability. Sure. Uh, I'll tee this off. So Gitcoin is a place where you can get coins if you're a software engineer that's working on open source software. Our mission is to grow and sustain open source software. And the idea is that blockchain is a new hope for open source sustainability. So we're with blockchain. We've got native internet money that we can program with smart contracts, we can program our values into our money. And if we value open source software, then maybe we could create economic systems that make rewarding and contribute or sorry, uh, maintaining and contributing to open source software, profitable, sustainable, 
maybe you can even thrive when you're doing it. And that's the sort of North Star that we chase at the Gitcoin project. Um, the actual tangible reason why blockchain is a new hope for open source sustainability is that there is billions of dollars of market cap that's now being built on open source in this open source financial mm -hmm. ecosystem. So all of the money that used to go to some back office on Wall Street is now going to open source software. And Gitcoin wants to build the, the tools to efficiently match capital to software developers. Um, our, our, our first project that we launched with is Bounties. So basically, if you have something that you want done on your open source repo, you can attach some ETH or any Ethereum-based token to that bug report, feature request, documentation request, security bounty. And then people will source someone from across the world to, to work on that for you. And then they'll get paid those tokens when they, they close out the issue. So um, not the be-all, end-all way of, of supporting open source developers, but it's one way that we can start to siphon off people from the closed source ecosystem into working on open source and and getting getting paid on it. So um, I met Eric about two years ago, and he was working on code funds. And, and we realized that uh, bounties are really good for contributors making money. Code fund is really is really good at supporting maintainers with ethical ads on their on their repos. And we've been working together ever since on the mission of growing and sustaining open source. Right. Eric, do you want to just give the elevator pitch for CodeFund since it's been brought up a few times and I'm not sure everybody knows what it is? And then we can dive into, okay, so what does all this blockchain stuff mean for open source as far as how it's approached and you know how it plays in if it does with CodeFund and things like that? Sure. So CodeFund is an ethical advertising platform that's built specifically to help grow and sustain and fund open source. Um, what we do is we we uh, invite uh, bloggers, uh, application builders, uh, maintainers to uh, join Code Fund and place a small snippet of code on their website or um, now on their GitHub README as well. And then we would display an ethical ad that, that is um, specifically geared towards the audience that they have. Uh, one of the things that I learned early on is that developers don't like to change who they are as a developer. Uh, they don't like to go out and do fundraising. They don't like to ask for money. They just like it to be uh, something that they don't have to worry about. Mm -hmm. uh, with CodeFund, it makes it so they can just do a tiny thing once, and then they just get consistent residual revenue from there on out. Um, we've been doing this for, as Kevin said, for almost two and a half years and uh, this uh, year alone, I think we've already sent out over $180,000, $190,000 to developers all over the world. And we're just getting started. Awesome. So uh, I know that GitHub or sorry, Gitcoin and CodeFund are related. So what's the relationship there? Yeah. So um, let's see. I... <clears throat> so shortly after uh, after I started Gitcoin, uh, Gitcoin by the way is like my fifth blockchain project that I was working on. I, I built a lot of duds before before Gitcoin happened, and um, I actually was lucky enough to get an introdu introduction to the co-founder of Ethereum, Joseph Lubin, who uh, was looking for people to build Ethereum DApps and was looking to fund people full time working in the Ethereum space, and so. Uh, flew out to New York and pitched Joe and got an offer to join Consensus as one of their incubated projects. 
And um, around that time, that was a really great stepping stepping function for for Gitcoin because before before that, Gitcoin was just used by me and my friends. I, you know, I was using Gitcoin to build Gitcoin. Uh, but once we joined Consensus, then some of the top projects in the Ethereum space we had intros to, and we we were able to level up into MetaMask and Truffle, and now the Ethereum Foundation themselves uses Gitcoin to incentivize work. And um, around that time, uh, around that time, Eric was looking to go full time on uh, what was then called Code Sponsor, and so I chatted with him about about joining forces and going full time on this, and that was sort of the genesis of us working together. Uh oh, my I'm, I'm going to add a little bit. Um, uh, no, we I heard you perfectly, Kevin. Yeah, cool. yeah you can, um, fine. Yeah, so I'm going to add a little bit to that. And the, the reason we, we met each other, uh, the reason that I reached out to you initially is because at the time I had, I think, a hundred and some odd people that I was paying every month. And I recognized that um, I couldn't continue doing that without a better way. And I'd never really considered blockchain at the time as a possible solution to, to distribute funds. But once I learned about you, once I learned about what you were doing, um, I wanted to know how we could at least tie in that part. So there was an immediate need for me back then that kind of opened my eyes. As you know, it's been like a, a two-year process of like trying to get me into the blockchain camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'll, keep, we'll keep pulling you down the rabbit hole here. <laughs> keep pulling me down the rabbit hole, exactly. So the biggest thing I see, um, at least for my needs, was that uh, form of distribution. And that still exists today. I mean, you look at... You look at companies like um, like Uber or Airbnb that are paying tens of thousands of people every month. Um, there's a huge uh, institution that you have to have to make that happen. But how do you make that happen on such a small, uh, as broadly as you can, but with such a tight budget and a small team? That's where I believe the blockchain really plays a good part, at least in the future of CodeFund. Gotcha. So is it really just kind of the the scale and availability then that blockchain affords that is going to make open source sustainability easier? Or you were also talking about smart contracts and it sounds like that's part of the equation as well. For sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to represent that we've solved the problem. It's sort of a giant unsolved incentive problem with the world right now that our digital infrastructure largely is built by people nights and weekends, and there's a massive burnout cycle with maintainers. It's just that uh, the design space of blockchain and open source sustainability is a really interesting one because the new financial system enables uh, more more liquidity, uh, faster payments around the world with less with less bureaucracy. You now got this this tokenization trend, which can allow contributor. Uh, open source maintainers to create value and assign it to tokens within their projects. And, and I would be remiss in, in, if I didn't say that, you, you know, there's like a straw man, there's an, there's an elephant in the room, which is that when most people hear about blockchain, they just hear about the price of Bitcoin and whether it's going up or down. And yeah. people really only scratch the surface of the potential of a completely open source financial system. And and I think that you know that that greed of of looking at the price going up now pulls a lot of people in. But my hope is that once people are are sucked down the rabbit hole, they they realize how big the possibility is of of creating a, a financial system with smart contracts where you can program your values into your money, where you can do microtransactions much more quickly and and efficiently, 
And I think there's a lot of interesting innovation happening in the space, uh, the intersection of open source sustainability and blockchain. And, you know, I can go through lots of philosophical reasons why it's going to be different this time. But I think that the main one is that there's actually money to fund open source in the blockchain ecosystem. Billions of dollars of market cap chasing too few developers. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in economics to, to know that that's a favorable place to, to work on open source sustainability. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm curious then. So you're talking about, um, you know, people getting paid with coin, which is one interesting aspect. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what that affords you as opposed to using just regular currency. <clears throat> uh, well, I mean, I think it depends on the use case, right? I mean, there's certain use cases that that you just won't be able to use. I'm using air quotes here, regular currency for, I mean, credit card companies take 3% plus 35 cents. Yeah. So I'm very aware of that every time I get paid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's cross-border bureaucracy that you yes. have to deal with. Uh, Eric will buy Eric a beer if you ever see him and he will tell you all about, uh, about remittances and, and paying publishers from, from across the world. But the biggest unlock that we've seen for Gitcoin is that there's all of these, all of these knowledge workers in places like certain places in Africa, certain places in Eastern Europe, that don't have access to a stable financial system and don't have access to Western jobs. And those people are the most voracious users of, of Gitcoin that we've seen because now they can all of a sudden work for Western companies. They can work on open source, which is something that aligns with their values. And they can, they can build up a portfolio out in the open and start to build all these connections and get paid without having to bribe someone at their, at their local bank to, uh, to release the payment. And so I think that that's, that's sort of the most compelling fertile ground that we've seen with Gitcoin's use case thus far, but uh, the more adoption happens for blockchain across the world, the more there's fiat on ramps and off ramps, I think you're going to see a lot more interesting, interesting use cases start to, to, to spring up. That makes sense. So is this a direction, Eric, Ben, that you see as far as being able to pay out, you know, both maintainers and uh, advertisers? I don't know exactly what the term you use for uh, advertisers is, but yeah, paying out people who are then participating in the code fund system. So as far as the inbound funds that come from our advertisers, we do already accept both ETH and DAI. Uh, We believe they're stable enough to actually be used as currency, and we're able to uh, basically turn around and use that money to pay some of our publishers. The publishers are are what we call the developers, the bloggers, the builders, maintainers. Um, And uh, as far as as they go, what we're planning on doing, what we're currently doing is we – it's still a very manual process. So, for example, on Monday or Tuesday, which is October 1st, we get the privilege of sending out over almost $40,000. It'll be very close to $40,000 by, by, by Tuesday that we get to send to, I think, about 100 people. Now, these people will end up paying through PayPal. We'll end up paying through ACH transfer. We'll end up paying through Ethereum or DAI. We'll end up paying through uh, TransferWise. Like, so there's all of these giant hurdles that we have to do to overcome that. Now, another thing that happens is oftentimes some, some of our publishers are also advertisers. So they want to say, hey, take some of this funds, some of these funds and turn them back in and let's place ads to help build my project. And it's kind of a cyclical thing where the more money they put in, the bigger their project gets, the bigger their project gets, the more money they receive and so forth. Um, the way that I see the probably, I, I hope within a year, 
but if not, maybe within two years to where we can say, okay, our default form of payment will be ETH. And the beauty of that will be that we can pay out on a daily basis. We can pay out on an hourly basis if we want for the money that they earn. We don't need to hold on to that money. There, there's no reason for us to hold on to money when you know it's already spent, it's already earned, and it's not ours anymore. I'd love to get that money out. The other thing that will be very nice is that those, uh, those publishers will actually be able to have an, a wallet where they can store that, those funds to whether they can withdraw or reuse them within the application. Um, again, this is very uh, pipe dreamy. But, you know, working with a guy like Kevin does allow me to have these dreams <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that I probably would never have even known about without, without his influence. So, uh, but aside from, aside from the problem of paying out and receiving money, I think there's a bigger, a bigger point of discussion that uh, where blockchain really fits in to, to open source. And uh, for those listeners that don't know, I'm, a, I'm also a panelist on one of Chuck's other shows called Sustain Our Software. And today we had a phenomenal discussion uh, with a guy. His name is um, uh, Sirkan Holat. Sirkan Holat. Now, Sirkan, um, the whole podcast was about um, taxation on top of open source so that, you know, on a government level. Um, I personally don't believe that that's the way to go, but the the idea of a taxation for for sustaining open source is so intriguing to me, and I want to kind of introduce this topic and hand it over to Kevin because Kevin, you have a lot of experience in this area, and there's something that I truly believe in that you've been working on. I don't think it took off, but to me, I think that is a key way that we can start right. solidifying our future. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I am the author of an EIP, which stands for Ethereum Improvement Proposal, to do block reward funding for open source maintainers. And let me unpack that a little bit. So uh, blockchains are economic systems that are secured with math. There's an algorithm called proof of work in which there's miners on the network that are racing right. to find the next block by basically doing a bunch of math functions very quick. And by doing the math functions, they basically are racing to secure the next block and are rewarded when they do secure the next block with, I think it's two ETH is the current issuance on the Ethereum network. And, and, and so uh, there's this algorithm called proof of work where they can prove that they did the work to earn that two ETH. And this is, this is inflation of the Ethereum economic system, which is currently at 4%. It won't stay at 4% forever. I think the monetary policy is minimum viable issuance to secure the network. So it'll probably go down to 0.5% within the next few years. Anyway, uh, so I, I wrote this EIP in which I said, hey, miners are doing work to secure the network. But aren't all these open source software developers also doing work in order to create value for the Ethereum network and right. our open source public digital infrastructure? Why don't we take some of the issuance that's going to miners and have it go to open source software developers, which to me would be an amazing pool of funding because Ethereum is a between 20 and $50 billion economic network. And if we're talking even a sliver of a percent, then that could be a really significant for a lot of people to just focus uh, on, on open source sustainability. And so we had a good like honeymoon period with the EIP where for three weeks, people were like, wow, this is this is really good. Like, this is an idea. Let's let's just figure this out. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it it just 
created this wave, this wave of controversy. And basically, the, the controversy, the, the thrust of it was, this is a system that could be captured. So basically, in theory, if, if all of this money is getting distributed to open source software maintainers, then that's a good thing. But how do we prove that these open source maintainers are creating value for the Ethereum ecosystem? And you know, with the miners, you have proof of work. You can mathematically prove that they did work that's valuable to the system. But with software development, it's very abstract. Um, and you know, I'm not even sure that the software I wrote last week is going to have a lot of impact because it has to be deployed. People have to get feedback on it. There's no way to really prove that you created value. Yeah. On and top it could of have that, bugs and somebody else has to go and sure. Yeah, and so there's this, there's this, there's this. Um, well, first off, blockchain people don't like taxation. There's like the ethos of the Bitcoin movement, and uh, the whole. I think the long term goal is to not have taxation, um, but there also is a friendliness towards open source maintainers. And so I think that where it came out is that the Ethereum mainnet is not going to have block rewards funding anytime in the future. And the reason for that is is that uh, these networks will harden over time, and layer layer one, which is the Ethereum mainnet. Will will harden uh, to prevent capture over time. And Vitalik Buterin, who's the one of the co-founders of Ethereum, has this really amazing blog post about how in in these economic systems there is a, a impossible trade-off between failing to fund legitimate public goods and incentivizing an oligarch. So basically, if you incentivize public goods, then you're basically you're allowing capture. You're allowing an oligarchy to maybe get a foothold in your economic system. Uh But if you don't do that, then you're failing to incentivize legitimate public goods. And so I think that I think that the TLDR is that it's not going to happen on the Ethereum mainnet anytime soon. But there are other there are other blockchains in which block award funding for open source is going to be a thing. And I'm really following those experiments closely to see what we can learn from those economic systems. And maybe we can backport that to some of the, the economic systems in the Ethereum space. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. Because I, I love the idea. It's, it's kind of automatic then, the, the funding of something that brings value to the network. And you're right. I mean, um, you know, the first handful of full-time jobs and then a lot of the contracts I worked after that, they all benefited from open source. And so, mm-hmm. you know, some form of, hey, I'm benefiting from this. And so some of this 
you know, money is going to go back to those projects. You know, I, I don't know that we need to capture all of the value that they create, but at least make it so that, yeah, people, and I've had long right. conversations with Eric about burnout, and, you know, re- yeah. rewarding people and recognizing people and things like that. And yeah, so making that automatic so that it's like, hey, you're creating real value here. Let's make sure that, you know, you know, that we appreciate it and you're getting something from it other than just, you know, the feel goods on the good days. Right, exactly. The feel goods are are great, but they don't help you pay your mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, the real shame is when people get burnt out and they start saying, well, F it, I'm going to go work for Google or I'm going to go work for Stripe yeah. or some bank because that's what's going to pay the bills. And, and, you know, my first responsibility as a parent and um, it, it, it and and as a husband or, or partner is to is to support my family. And so it's 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 a real shame when people have to have to quit. And so closing the gap between value created and value captured is, I think, the highest thing that Gitcoin can do if we're successful. Will will I think have, have have done that? Yeah. The other the other angle on that, at least for me, is that, and I, I have a number of friends. I could tell you story after story after story um, for people. Most of them were told in confidence, you know, after they rage quit whatever open source project they were working on, was it felt good on the good days, and then the days where somebody came in and just bagged on what they were working on were the bad days. And so if, you know, if it's like, well, at least some people care enough about this project to put some money into it, you know, it makes it easier to swallow some of that and and kind of take it and go, you know what, it's not, it's not all a loss here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know, like, I think, you know, entitlement in, in open source is, is a problem and I have a pretty strict no asshole policy on on my stuff but but a lot of people are are maybe more forgiving and and it won't bring out the band hammer as quickly as yeah. as quickly as I will but it's 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 a real bummer when people feel entitled to your work that you're giving away for free yeah well and the band hammer I mean I'm, I I've I've been pretty aggressive with it in, in certain circumstances but you still have to go through the emotional garbage while you do it I'm you know, they've gone so far. I've put so much work into this. I'm really upset that this went down this way. Van Hammer, you know, it, it still takes stuff out of you. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's an emotional toll there. So uh, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of go back into Gitcoin a little bit because you're, you're talking about, you know, using smart contracts to put a bounty on things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems that I've seen with other systems that have done similar things, especially with bounties. And I think this is more of a problem with bounties, I guess, than with necessarily your implementation, but how do you know it's done? Oh boy, that is the uh, the can of worms that right? <laughs> that we could go deep on. So, um, you know, it's the same thing that, like I said, with the block rewards funding is that when work is done with a computational system that you can prove that it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with software development is that you really can't prove that it's done. I mean, you can do test-driven development, but even that will only be, depending on how good your test coverage is, will only be good in 90 something percent of cases. And so uh, the, the architecture of Gitcoin's bounty network is there's a, a really amazing smart contract called standard bounties on the Ethereum ecosystem, which basically asks, acts as an escrow function. So when you post a, a, an issue on Gitcoin, uh, it goes into this escrow right. contract called standard bounties, which is very secure. It's been audited several times. And that holds ETH, which is in itself a pretty amazing thing. If you look at Upwork's terms of service, Upwork has Upwork Escrow LLC, which holds your funds in between 
A and B. And Gitcoin doesn't have to do that because just the blockchain kicks, takes care of yeah. it. So, um, and then, so basically the submission process is that that gets marketed out instantly to 30,000 software developers across the world. When someone starts work on the issue, then they will be introduced to the funder. And when they submit work, that's their attestation that they've finished up the work. And then there's typically anyone who's submitted a pull request knows that there's typically a couple iterations of review that happen. And then if that, if that, goes through the success criteria, then that'll get paid out. And so that's the happy path. The reality is that software development is abstract. I can think that you're building me a swing and you can think that I'm building you a, a tree, a, 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 a swing set. And so software developers sometimes aren't the best communicators in the right. world also. And so, um, you know, and that's where, that's where you can't build crypto economic incentives and provable correctness into these things. And you really need to focus on social norms. And so the social norms that we enforce are um, pay a decent hourly rate, try your best to specify what you want, but also keep in mind that these are human systems and these are real three-dimensional humans across the world and, and leave some money to tip them if the scope changes or, or things iterate because those are just the human things that happen in, in everyday interactions. And I think that, um, you know, building a reputation system where people can review each other after each bounty. And then that sort of follows you to your next bounty has been the, the social layers where we spent a lot of work trying to make sure that that no asshole policy exists on the Gitcoin right. network. So we haven't, we haven't totally solved it. And I don't think that it is a totally solvable problem, but you can put guardrails around, around some of those things. Right. So what do you do in the case of a dispute? You know, let's say that they said they wanted a swing. And so I built a porch swing and they just wanted a, yeah, you know, a swing for a swing set kind of thing, or um, yeah, you know, that I I wrote documentation, but they're not happy with the way that I did it, or something like that. Yeah, um, so uh, I will say that that um, if you're ever interested in seeing our stats, uh, go to Gitcoin.co/results, and I think that 80 percent of the bounties that are started are completed and and successfully payment is issued. Um, of the 20 percent that are not. Most of those are either canceled or just stay abandoned on the platform for a few months until they're canceled. And then the very small minority that do arise into a dispute, um, there, there is a part of the standard bounties contract that allows for a decentralized arbiter, okay. say a committee of, of five people to step in and decide who's right or wrong. We're kind of a lean startup, and so we haven't really built anything into that yet. Typically, the way it happens is that both parties will approach me because I think they see me as the BDFL of Gitcoin, <laughs> and they say, "This guy's being a, this guy's being an asshole. Can you do something about it?" And I, and my approach is just to kind of be a mediator, and say, like, you know, like you're you're right, you know, I'm going to hear you out, but you know, we need to resolve this, and how can we resolve it amicably? And and most software developers, if you just be human with them and and listen to them, will will back down from, you know, they'll put their pitchfork down and they'll actually resolve it amicably. So uh, I guess the it's resolution by, by Kevin uh, right now is the answer, but eventually we will decentralize it. <laughs> That's right. If we all had a committee of Kevin, we'd be great. <laughs> um, Kevin committee. That, that's right. Boy, I, I, I should delegate some of my messes to the Kevin committee. Yeah, this is all really, really interesting. I'm curious how you kind of tie it all together. So what, what technology are you using? Um, you know, or I know some of it's written in, I can't remember the, the language you write the smart contracts in, 
Right. Solidity is the main Solidity, one. Solidity, that's it. Um, I'm a pretty Pythonic guy. I really like Python. And there's a new language called Viper that's coming out that's very Pythonic that will have things like provable correctness inside of the smart contracts. Which oh, nice. is actually very exciting because when you're building a smart contract that could hold millions of dollars, you kind of want to prove that it's not going to fuck up. <laughs> Maybe. Pardon my language. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, most of the, the Ethereum community is very JavaScript heavy. Uh, I, whenever I write JavaScript, I might just not be a good JavaScript developer, but I end up in callback hell every time I write JavaScript. And I'm a pretty big fan of, fan of Python, and that's worked out pretty well for us thus far. Uh, I think Eric, you guys are are Rails is is your primary stack, right? It is, yeah. So when we get together over beers at the Sustain Summit, we argue tabs and spaces, Python versus Ruby, <laughs> IDs, all the good nerdy stuff. Right. I actually have a pick in that area, so I'm excited. Yeah. One thing that I guess I'm curious about because we see a lot of these uh, DApps that are written, you know, partially in Solidity, and then there's some interface. This written in something like Python or Ruby or something. So, you know, what what parts of the overall Gitcoin system are written in Python then and which parts are written in Solidity? Is it just the uh, contracts that are Solidity? Yeah, so this is where it kind of gets funny. So the contracts are in Solidity. I wouldn't wish anyone writing web app in Solidity. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, so there's this thing in the Ethereum space, we call them dApps, which stands for mm -hmm. decentralized dApps. And I think that's, mostly aspirational in a lot of ways. A lot of these are just <laughs> web apps that are not super decentralized yet. And Gitcoin is pretty much mostly a Web2 application. I mean, you authenticate with, with OAuth. Um, we hide as much Ethereum stuff until you're already doing the bounty uh, as possible. And then we only really use the Ethereum ecosystem and, de and the decentralized tool tools when there's actually value to them. Like for example, Gitcoin doesn't have to touch the funds that are in escrow, and I think that's that's of great value to to both sides of the market. But I, I I do think that that's because right now the technology is very early, and when I started Gitcoin, I wanted to avoid the trade off of usability versus decentralization, and 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 I just wanted to build a really usable app. And then the idea was down the line as IPFS gets better, as these decentralized systems get better. We can we can look at moving things over uh, over there, and I think that people, when they're using an application, they just want it to work. They don't want to know that they're yeah. using the most decentralized application. No one comes home at the end of the day and says, "My day was so centralized; it sucks." Like <laughs> they, they want to get their job done, and so so that's that's the that's the sort of like trade off that that exists there. Nice, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So you've kind of talked your way around things as far as like how Gitcoin works and where you want it to go. I mean, what what can we expect to see in the immediate future with Gitcoin and with blockchain in general regarding open source sustainability? Right. Uh, so I, <clears throat> uh, so we've launched other products. It's worth noting that, that Bounties is just the first product that we launched with. Uh, we have this tool called Gitcoin Grants, which is basically a decentralized Patreon where these crypto projects can raise money with ETH or any ERC-20 token. And there's this, there's this gimmick with Gitcoin grants that's called uh, CLR matching. And mm -hmm. just to unpack that and why it's really powerful, the basic way that it works is that every contribution to Gitcoin grants when we're running an active matching round will get matched. And it's not a one-to-one -one match. So, so basically, if Project X 
is raising $100 from one person in a traditional matching system, then the matching pools would give out $100 to that project also. But the way CLR ma matching works is there's this mathematical formula, which according to Glenn Wild, this, this economist that everyone in the blockchain space follows, is the mathematically optimal way to incentivize public goods, which I think, I think that's cool. I don't know enough math to know uh, if that's just marketing or not. But, but basically, it's called it's CLR matching, it's quadratic matching. And the way that it works is that the matching is based not only on the volume of the contributions, but it's based off of the breadth of support in contributions. So to take my earlier example, if you had $100 from one contributor, then, then that would not be matched nearly as much as $10 from 10 contributors. Because the, mm -hmm. the latter project would have way more of a groundswell of support. Right. And, and to the degree of, of, I think that the latter one would, be, would have like seven or eight times more matching. And so basically what it, what it is, is a matching system that's meant to optimize for projects that people, that the groundswell of people care about, not what the whales care about, not what the mm -hmm. oligarchs in an economic system care about. And so uh, Gitcoin Grants CLR round three is happening now. We've raised over $100,000 for projects in, in the open source ecosystem, and there'll be a $100,000 matching pool for open source. That's, that's happening right now, and we're super proud of our deployment of of that economists the that economists stuff uh gitcoin grants is happening we're also doing a lot of virtual hackathons so if you go to hackathons.gitcoin.co you'll see that we've done about five hackathons which is distributed about 500k worth of open source uh worth of money to open source and the hackathons are just kind of bounties but with some marketing and 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 sort of like a lightning strike of engagement once a month to, 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 to distribute money to open source software. So one of the things that we found is that bounties are really great way of incentivizing open source. If you know how to write a spec, if you know how to price your issue, if you know how to market your issue, but hackathons are, are, are a way for us to do a distributed worldwide hackathon and help you do the marketing, help you write the specs, help you price the issues and market it all together at this big lightning strike of, of of engagement for for hackers and so the the virtual hackathon model is interesting because those people in east asia those people in africa can contribute to open source and can really use this as a focal point for what they're going to do work-wise for for the next month and there are people who work full-time for the gitcoin network which is which is i think super cool so uh i guess the answer is gitcoin grants and virtual hackathons are sort of the focus for for the next several months and then on the code fund side, we've also got some interesting developments in, in how code funds can scale their, their work in supporting open source. Eric, you want to talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So if you remember back in 2017, we started off with a code sponsor and the whole premise behind it was to uh, display a message from a paying company on a GitHub readme. And then whenever somebody would click, whenever a developer would click on that link, um, they would get paid. And that lasted a good six months. We generated well over $12,000 to give out to the developers during that period of time. Uh, when we shut down in December of 2017, we had over 1,600 active projects on the platform. So GitHub said to uh, turn it off. So we turned it off. Over the last two years, or I guess a year and a half since then, I've kind of been touching my toes in the water, trying to talk to them. 
help them understand that this wasn't a bad thing and how can we how can we pivot to make this still work because at the end of the day this was this was driving a lot of money towards open source projects that really didn't have the means to generate that elsewhere we recognized that generating funding through asking for donations was not uh very uh feasible and asking them to just stop what you're doing and go market yourself instead of continue continue to sustain your your projects that also is uh, uh, something that we didn't want to do. So sorry, I'm giving a whole big long premise to to what we're about to launch. So probably by the time you listen to this, we'll be launched. Uh, we are now able to get back onto GitHub. We're we're going to be announcing soon um, CodeFund sponsorships. And CodeFund, what we now have is any project out there that would like to receive funding can go to CodeFund, can get a small snippet of code to put at the very top of the readme. And then what happens is that project now becomes part of a marketplace that that these advertisers, these, these sponsors can look at and say, okay, well, I really want to sponsor these partially because, I mean, there's dual motivation. One of them is they might be sponsoring because they want to uh, help those projects because they use them, or they might be sponsoring because they know that the type of uh, people that use that that open source project are also an ideal customer of theirs. So um, what happens is the very top of the readme, you'll see just sponsored by, and then a logo for that company. And then when you click on the logo, you go to the website, but it's a, it's a fixed monthly price. There's no cost per click. There's no cost per impression. It's just a fixed price. Um, but by providing all of this in a way where advertisers come in and basically create this custom package for themselves, we, we expect to see the same type of high quality results that we saw back in 2017. And we're super excited to launch this. I mean, we've already got $3,000 lined up to go out just in October on our trial. And once we open the doors to everybody, I think it'll be quite, quite amazing. That's cool. And I was, I was excited when you launched Code Sponsor and it was, it was, it was kind of nice to be able to see those ads in the readme's and kind of, uh, it gave me a good feeling because it's like, okay, you know, it's another avenue for people to support open source um, maintainers and open source projects without the maintainer or the project having to go way out of their way to do anything other than include that snippet and then know that, you know, they were going to get some backup come their way. Yeah, absolutely. About 10 months before we started Ruby Rogues, which is the oldest podcast on devchat.tv, I went freelance. And one of the things that I figured out pretty fast is that I had no idea what I was doing. And I made a bunch of mistakes, but I also made a bunch of friends who were doing freelance. And we got together and we started a podcast called The Freelancer Show. And The Freelancer Show has been running about as long as JavaScript Jabber. But we talk every week about all of the things that we were learning and doing in freelancing and giving people advice on how to get their business started so that they could go out and be independent if that's what they wanted. Nowadays, I'm not on the show anymore, but we have terrific people like Riven Lerner and Eric Dietrich that come on every week and talk to you about how they run their businesses and give other perspectives on things that you can do. So whether it's how to find clients or whether it's how to step in and start doing training or other programs or how to run a business, they have a ton of experience and they talk about all kinds of things that are gonna help you pull things together and be successful as a freelancer. So whether you're thinking about moonlighting and trying it out or whether you're going whole hog and quitting your job, you should definitely check out The Freelancer Show. And you can find that at freelancershow.com. I mean, it's been an effective means of generating passive revenue. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we talked a lot about the taxation on top of open source. 
and I believe that taxation within blockchain is, you know, taking the idea that Kevin had and applying that to open source overall. There's a bunch of hurdles to get there, but when it comes to a global effort to fund these projects, um, every solution is going to fall flat unless it can scale and be automated. And right now, I can't think of anything outside of blockchain that can scale and retain a sense of automation um, to make that happen. I mean, even if GitHub turned on and said, okay, we're now, going, we're now in the advertising space and we're going to start funding these projects through advertising, that's great. But what happens to those projects that are being used, but they're, they're not getting a lot of visitors? You know what I mean? Yep. And so there's a, I honestly, truly, truly believe that the, in the, within the next five to 10 years, blockchain is going to play such a major a factor in, in the growth, sustainability, um, um, uh, just thrive, thriving of open source. In fact, that's what I gave a talk on recently at a conference essentially laying out like, hey, this is all this stuff that we've been doing. These are great efforts and this is what the world's doing. And, and then if you look at it, you kind of, I have two slides, which I think are really interesting. Uh, one of my slides is, is sharing one of those, um, or that, that, that um, short, I think it's a poem. It's not really a poem, but it's about a starfish, right? This, this old man's walking along the beach, sees this kid throwing starfish back into the ocean. And he asks him, uh, why are you doing that? Because the, the beach is completely covered with thousands and thousands of starfish. And the kid just checks one back and the kid says, um, well, I'm saving, I'm saving the starfish. And, and the old man kind of chuckled and said, well, there's no way you can save all of these starfish. And then the boy picked up another one and checked it back in and said, well, you know, it mattered to that one. And, and you think about that and that's such a great feeling. But uh, I turn that around and let's say, and, and my next slide is actually a big slaughter of like all these dead starfish. <laughs> yes. I'll be thinking about it. That's really great, you know, and open source is kind of that way. The privileged get paid. Yeah, I don't need money. Great. No problem. But what about all of those projects out there that are failing and dying because yeah. we're not paying attention to it? And that's the problem that I think can only be solved when you have the technology built behind it to be able to do that. Yeah. I don't believe that Web 2 can do that. I think Web 3 is the only way. What do you think, Kevin? Thanks, Eric. Been feeding, uh, been, been, uh, been sending the blockchain Kool-Aid over to Eric over the last two years and looks like it finally set in. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, good. Yeah, so I mean, I think that like, uh, I think that the internet changed the world because it allowed computers to send information over a computer network. And that anything that relied on information in the world changed. And that's a lot of things. So our media, our entertainment, our politics all changed because of the internet. And, and I think that blockchain has the ability to send financial value over a computer network. And so there's the potential that anything that relies on financial value can be changed by the blockchain-based internet, which we call uh, ever so arrogantly in the blockchain space Web3. Uh, as it, and, and so I think that basically what, you know, because of the internet, we have, we have a thousand songs in our pocket and we have record companies, you know, records in our, in our pocket, you know, with blockchain, now we could have a bank in our pocket. And so what does that world look like? I, I think that another way I like to splice and dice this opportunity is that it, it is thinking about, uh, about what, what paradigm these these economic economic systems are are sovereign too, and so 
if you think about the internet as an example, the internet's a really great example because it, it took several decades to play out. It kind of sucked at the beginning, but it did eventually change the world. And also, it's it's a hindsight thing, so we can reason about it with with the gift of hindsight, which, as you guys know, is twenty twenty. So, uh, if you think about the internet and the difference between uh, Yahoo, which, in my opinion, took the old card catalog system and put it on the internet. You know, you wanted to look up the Denver Nuggets, which is a basketball team. You have to go to sports, professional sports, basketball, Colorado, and you have to look it up. And then Google just created this completely new interface that was native to the internet, which allowed you to look up the Denver Nuggets by just typing their name. And so if you think about that, then the this sort of parable to the blockchain-based internet is well, what's going to be the economic system that's completely native to the blockchain that to the blockchain-based internet that's going to save open source? I think that bounties are something that you can do in the old world, and and that's good. It's a it's a good way of of building something that people can expect in in the new world that they recognize from the old world. But there are going to be fundamentally new native economic systems to the blockchain-based internet and block rewards. Funding is is the one example that we've already talked about on the show that's just you couldn't do without without the blockchain based internet. There's actually this really interesting project that we're friends with called OS Coin, and basically what they're doing is they're creating an algorithmic rank of every open source project using a modified version of PageRank. And the way that works is that if your project X depends on project Y, then that's a vote for project Y's importance. Kind of like how PageRank in the web is, if there's an anchor link from one site to another, then that's a, a vote that that, that that site is important. And right. so basically what they're using is they're creating a dependency graph of OS rank, and then they're basically going to distribute block rewards fundings to, uh, to all these different projects. And I think that they're going to be valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it could be a significant event for a lot of these projects. And, and so... The, the, the question that I would leave your audience with as we start to break is, what's the fundamentally new thing that's going to exist because of the blockchain-based internet that's going to save open source? It's that design space that's really exciting to me. Yep. Yeah, and I, I don't know enough about it to really comment on it myself, but I, I, I do see all of the things you're talking about as an interesting direction for this to go. Yeah, because as people put value into the system, into the ecosystem that's around it, and then we're able to recognize the value that's coming out of the effort that people are putting in, be it through blockchain or, you know, any of the other ways that people find that they get support for their open source projects. I, I, I yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting future. And with blockchain as an option for not just, you know, being sort of the, the currency of value that we're using, but also the way of keeping track of the value that's coming, I, I think it's really interesting to see where we're going to end up. Yeah, uh, I mean, I will say that I, I do think that it's interesting, but I am by no means think it's going to change everything all at once. There's still a lot of unsolved problems. I think the energy emissions with proof of work stink, and I can't wait until Ethereum moves over to proof of stake. There's an Oracle problem, which is basically how do you get data on chain that's reliable? And, and you know, there's a problem with private key management. I, I know how to manage my private keys, but I also have a computer science degree and have been working in technology as an engineer for the last 10 years. Uh, my grandma is not going to want to manage her own private key. And so I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of challenges to solve, but I'm fundamentally optimistic when you look at it, at it on a multi-decade time arc. And I don't think, I think anyone who uses it to get rich quick is going to be sorely disappointed. Those days are behind us. 
And I think that if you look at it with a long-term time horizon, then then you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Well, it's like any other technology. I think a lot of times we get this idea that, oh, well, you know, the radio showed up and then, you know, everybody yeah. blah, 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 right? But what really happened is, is that that incrementally pushed people to make better receivers and better transmitters. And then it incrementally pushed people to make better microphones and, and uh, you know, come up with better ways of transmitting across wires and better, you know, and so all of this happened. Same thing with TV, right? Is we see kind of a TV revolution in the 50s, but the TV was invented in the 30s, I think. And it, it, it was just an incremental growth toward, you know, the point where TVs were cheap enough and advanced enough that people could use them in their house and afford them. And so we're going to see the same thing with blockchain. And so it's not a reason right. to not try now. It's it's a reason to be involved now so that we can push things forward and make them work in a way that um, supports the things that we're trying to support. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. I'm reminded of when you talk about TV and radio uh, in Back to the Future when Marty McFly goes back to when he goes back to, what is it, 1955? 1955, and he, yep. And he visits that family and and they're like, oh, do you have a TV? Do you have a TV, Marty? And Marty's like, yeah, I have two. And they're like, wow, you must you must be rich. Yeah. And, and so it's just, you know, how technology gets cheaper yeah. over time and, and more distributed. And um, there's a really interesting book I just read called The Master Switch, which is all about the launch and the ebb and flow between centralization and decentralization of communications networks, starting with Western Union to Bell Telephone to radio to television to I think the next one was the internet. I can't recall. And so, just, you know, the, a lot of these things are history not repeating itself, but rhyming. And and yeah. it's 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 fun to learn about the history there because it gives you a sense of perspective. Yep. Yeah, and so we're just inventing new train lines for all this stuff to run on. I hope so. And hopefully these new train lines have less intermediaries. I I don't like paying a wire transfer fee of $30 every time I want to send money across the world. I don't, I don't think that that's a fair economic system. And, you know, if you're, you know, the, 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 the whole thing that people talk about in the blockchain space is removal of intermediaries. Visa MasterCard yeah. taking a 3% fee on every transaction is they built a billion dollar empire by doing that. But, uh, but you know, we, we moved from AOL, which was a centralized walled garden uh, internet system to the open internet. And I think there's an analogy with analogy with the banking system where we can move to an open intermediary less banking system. And I hope that someone builds a Netflix of banks. I don't like having to log in every month and look for where I was dinged with, with random fees here and there. Uh, I think that I think that hopefully there will be there will be change in the financial services sector because of the competition brought on by blockchain networks. Yep. All right. Well, I need to push us into picks. I've got two three-year-olds that my wife left me with. So, um, okay. yeah. So get some parenting picks out. I think all three of us are parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I could tell you stories. I've been torturing two of my kids for the last two days. Anyway. Yeah. Before we do that, though, if people want to get involved in CodeFund or in... Gitcoin, where, what are the best ways to do that? Uh, if you Google Gitcoin, then you will find Gitcoin.co, which is our primary landing page. You can sign up for our mailing list, which is just basically a once a week email from me about the latest in blockchain and open source sustainability. And then you can also opt into new bounty emails if anything matches your, your skill set. Uh, I think that 
Google has finally learned to stop autocorrecting Gitcoin to Bitcoin. So I feel like we've made it in that way. And you'll find <laughs> Gitcoin.com. Uh, Eric, Eric, how about CodeFund? Yeah, so CodeFund, you can find it at CodeFund.io. Um, and uh, yeah, check us out. Nice. Yeah, I, I definitely want to throw in a plug since uh, uh, Eric kind of just said, here's where it is. But uh, it's it's a terrific way. If you're if you're supporting the open source ecosystem in any way, it they make it really, really easy to get the stuff on your website. So um, yeah. then you're putting the ads up, you're getting some money coming in for what you're doing. And yeah, it, it's, it really is, you know, kind of an automatic way if you've got traffic coming to that website to, to get a little bit of help. So yeah, do it. Uh, I want to, I want to really quickly, uh, as we're breaking shill, um, Eric and I are going to be co-hosting a conference out here in Colorado in February. Uh, that's, that's a sustain, sustain web three is what we're calling it. And it's going to be a one day celebration of open source and a talk and an event that talks about the intersection of blockchain and open source sustainability. So if anyone's looking to, to contribute in open source sustainability, that's a great way, great way to get involved and will be a continuation of many of the conversations we've had on the podcast today. So I guess that'll be my that'll be my pick. I already went. <laughs> Sustain Web3 in Boulder in February. You you can pick whatever you want. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, Eric, you you know the drill with picks. Do you have some picks? I do have uh, I have a pick. Um, actually I got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is a uh, an AirPods case that, so last trip that I was on actually with Kevin, uh, I lost my AirPods and that's not good. And normally I have them tucked safely into my, um, to my belt loop, but this time for some reason I didn't. And some Uber driver is now the new owner of my AirPods. So I got a new pair, um, but I got this case and you can see it. I can't, the audience can't see it, but it's this leather pouch that's absolutely fantastic. Um, I think it was only 18 bucks or 12 bucks or something, but it's like cowhide leather and super fancy and it hooks right on my belt. And, and I got to say, I look pretty damn sexy with it on. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, the other pick I'm going to have is something that's not out at this current moment, but it will be by the time this podcast airs. One of the things that I've been helping work on with, uh, I've been pairing up with, um, the people over at Open Collective, and they're about to launch something, um, which is an extension to their Back Your Stack platform. What they're going to provide is a way for what they, I guess, have provided now is a way for uh, companies to be able to back their stack personally so they can list out their stack. But then they're going to be able to share that and compete with, you know, fun, compete with funding, but also place the a badge on their website that actually declares to the world, to the open source community, that um, they are backing their stacks. So when you as a developer are looking for uh, companies to buy products from, keep an eye out for that. Those are the people that are giving back, um, at least that are giving back through that project. That's all I have. That's cool. Um, I'm going to throw some picks out there. I'm going to start out since uh, we kind of all talked about what we're working on. Um, I'm working on a new uh, project for devchat.tv listeners. Well, and anyone else that's out there in the programming community. I, I've talked to a lot of people. And what I'm finding is that there really isn't a whole lot of support for... I hate to say soft skills, but that's a lot of what it is. Um, essentially, it, the way that I'm putting it is, think about that person or the people that you've worked with in the past that were just kind of those top-notch coders, right? Top-notch people that you really love to work with. 
that seemed to be able to solve most of the problems that came their way. They were pleasant to work with. They were a great help to you when you needed it. Uh, they were willing to accept your help when they needed it. They, you know, it seemed like the, the sky was the limit with their opportunities for career growth and things like that. I'm putting together a membership site that's essentially designed around helping people get become those people. A lot of times we hear like 10x engineer, which seems like sort of a conceited way of saying I'm 10 times better than some other person out there, which is an idea I don't love. But at the same time, you know, we, we do need to have a way of actually talking about leveling up and, and not just in the code, which is I think where we talk about a lot is, you know, some measurable version of on my own, I can, you know, implement so much. And so I want to talk about the other areas. So whether it's, you know, how to build your skills, how to communicate with other developers, how to, um, you know, be a team lead or how to support your team lead, how to, you know, learn about and embody the, the values of the company you work for and things like that. And so I'm, I'm working on a series of videos. I'm about ready to launch the, um, the guide to finding your dream developer job. And just pulling a lot of this together, I find that a lot of people are really kind of hungry for that sort of how do I how do I succeed at this and not just succeed in making the highest salary, but how do I find a job that is going to empower me? And then how do I uh, excel in the job in a way that makes a difference for my team, for the community that I'm serving and for everybody else? So that that's what I'm building. I've uh, termed it Max Coders. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be basically a blueprint for how to become a Max Coder. And you can find it at maxcoders.io. And it'll be out by the time this goes live. Kind of in a beta state. So I'll probably actually be selling it at a discount while it's in beta. So it might be a good time to get in. Uh, limited seats on that. But yeah, so you can check that out. And then I've also been listening to a book on Audible. And I typically shy away from the sort of political picks. But this book has been really interesting. And I think it's a good read for anybody who's out there who's involved in the political system and has questions about why Donald Trump does some of the things he does. I'm not going to endorse any point of view on this. But the book is The United States of Trump by Bill O'Reilly. And really what it boils down to, it's, it, you know, he interviews people around Donald Trump. And you kind of get the backstory and the history of where he and his family came from and what it was, you know, you know, kind of his life story and why he might approach some things the way that he does. And again, I'm not endorsing anything or saying that he's right to think the way that he does, but it definitely makes him a little bit more understandable. And so if you're if you're trying to figure out what in the heck is he thinking, um, this answers some of that. So anyway, I, I've been enjoying the book and I, I've been finding it very, very interesting as far as, OK, how, how did he become who he was? And, you know, why does he, you know, approach some of this stuff the way that he does? So anyway, United States of Trump. Kevin, do you have anything else you wanted to shout out about on the show? I mean, I guess Sustain Web 3 and Boulder was, I guess, my first pick. And then let's say my second pick was uh, I've been on the, the Ergo train recently. I spend a lot of hours in front of my computer trying to make Bitcoin do do all that it can do. And I, I your listeners won't be able to see it, but my posture is kind of like slouchy and off to the side. And uh, I went to a chiropractor like nine months ago and he was like, your left side's an inch longer than your, than your right. How do you sit? And I just kind of like did this, this weird hunched over thing, which is how I sit in front of my computer. So I'm really trying to get serious about correcting my posture. And that includes sitting up straight, taking walking breaks. But then also when I'm coding, not having my shoulders hunched forward. And so 
now I'm using the the Advantage Kinesis 2, which is an ergonomic keyboard that uh, is a split keyboard. And I really just, it took me like four days to relearn how to type on it, but it's just been, it's, 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 it's solved some issues for me. And, and I think that anyone else who's lack, uh, excuse me, uh, lapping a lot of hours on their computer might want to consider, consider going ergo both on your, your desk setup and your keyboard and your mouse, because it's really helped me avoid some of the back pain that I, that I was feeling. So those are my picks, Sustain Web 3 and ergonomic office equipment. Nice. All right. Well, thank you both for coming and uh, talking through this. I, I really think that there are some directions that we're heading with a lot of this stuff that's going to make a difference. And if there's anything we can do to support our open source community, I, I'm with you guys. We, we need to do what we can because, you know, the burnout is, I wanted to say unfortunate, but it's, it's really tragic. And uh, a lot of the things that people go through supporting our software is crazy. So yeah, yep. let's get in there for him. Let's be on the bench for him. Thanks so much for having us, Charles. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. Yep. All right, folks. Well, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have Gregory here next week and uh, we can uh, dive into some more blockchain stuff. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.